We are going to be reading out of Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. It will be on the screen if you are using the Bibles in front of you. That is page 981. And I will be reading verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word, it's true, and it's given out of his love. Awesome. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, so this morning we have a, a special guest preacher coming for us. These are always my favorite mornings to be at church when I don't uh, preach and I get to sit under God's word instead. Uh, if this is also your favorite morning to be at church when I'm not preaching, just keep that to yourself. Don't you tell anyone that. Uh, but this morning we have uh, Rick Eisenberg who's come down from Redemption Parker. Uh, in, at, uh, Redemption Parker is where uh, Mark and Jen Oshman are. They've both uh, guest spoke for us here at uh, different events that we've had as a church as well, so you may f- be familiar with them. Uh, but we are, we are a part as a church of a network called Acts 29, and with Acts 29 is, is it's a network of like-minded churches that try to partner together to plant more churches and see, see new churches started. And so Rick's role at Redemption Parker is he's the church planning resident. He and his wife are praying through this uh, idea of maybe planting a church in the future. And so we wanted to just uh, get to know him a little bit, build some relationships so that if he does end up pursuing that call to plant, that we can partner with them as they go uh, plant new gospel seeds in other parts of either the, the area here in southern Colorado or possibly uh, other part of the world. And so uh, Rick is a graduate of Oklahoma University where he played baseball. Uh, he coaches some baseball now. Yes. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, there's actually, lately there's been, uh, Satan has really been getting some inroads in our church through this uh, idea of, of soccer. And actually a lot of our young kids are playing soccer instead of baseball. So maybe you can help us with that this morning somehow exercise some of those demons. Uh, but then he went to Midwestern Seminary and is now uh, pursuing a doctorate of ministry at Denver Seminary. And so uh, he's spending a few years here uh, up in Parker uh, learning how to plant a church with Mark Oshman and that crew. And so we're grateful to have you come bring the word for us this morning. So Rick, thank you for being here. Boomer Sooner in the back. Man, soccer, baseball, what we need is a basketball in here and uh, we can really have some fun. Well, it is a privilege to worship with you guys this morning. Let me start by asking a serious question. That is, what do you long for? Or to even be more specific, what is the one thing that you desire more than anything in this life? Like if you just had this, you would be satisfied. What do you long for? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a famous quote many of us know from Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a man who on New Year's Day of 1956 had his whole life in front of him. He had just turned 28. He was a graduate of Wheaton College, was a gifted public speaker and zealous lover of Jesus. 
He had just been married to his godly wife, Elizabeth, for just over two years, and their daughter, Valerie, was only 10 months old. Jim had his entire future in front of him, and he seemed to be following his parents' instruction to be adventurous and live for Christ. Jim was not going to waste his life. Fast forward seven days, and Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions were attempting to bring the gospel to a tribe of 60 people who had never heard the name of Jesus, the Walrani tribe. It was on this day on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Curare River of Ecuador that five Walrani Indians speared to death Jim and his friends. In a blink of an eye, four young wives became widows. Nine children lost their daddies. And these five men lost their lives and promising futures. The world called it a nightmare of tragedy. Were they right? Was this an example of five wasted lives? Listen to how Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, responded, how she responded to the world calling this a nightmare of tragedy. She said, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliot's creed. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So let me ask you again, what do you long for? What is your deepest desire? What is the one thing that you need more than anything in this life? Like if you just had this, you would be content. My burden this morning is to explain what three verses in Matthew's gospel mean by what they say. And in doing so, I hope to show you in two parables in Matthew 13 that having Christ as your greatest treasure, your heart's desire, is worth not having something else, anything else, whatever it might be, as your greatest treasure, your heart's desire, your deepest longing. So what do you long for? If you would, please open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 13. It'll be on the screen as well, but Matthew chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 44 through 46. This is Jesus speaking. <clears throat> and I promise, I, I, I lost my voice because I got sick, not because that, that Sooner game was crazy last night, which it was. Jesus speaking, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Before we unpack this parable, I do need to say a few things about parables. 
We as 21st century American Christians are very linear in our thinking. Right? We love passages in the New Testament with rich theology um, in words we can understand. One point building off another to make whatever case we think the author's trying to make. That's why many of us love the Apostle Paul. But, but a lot of Jesus' theology comes to us in parables. And parables are not the language we often speak to each other in. But Jesus' audience, they were very familiar with parables. Right? These people came from an oral tradition, and a parable was a great way to paint a beautiful picture and explain truth in ways that would be hard to forget. We also need to note that when dealing with a text like this, what we don't want to do is look at these three verses and build an entire theology upon them. We must take this text in its literary context, looking down what comes before, what comes after, and its canonical context, what the Bible as a whole has to say about this topic. And here in chapter 13, Jesus is doing an extended teaching. This entire chapter, chapter 13, is a single sermon. So, so picture it. The crowded Galilean lakeside makes Jesus use his boat as a pulpit. And he begins to teach the crowd about the kingdom of heaven through parables. During this entire discourse, Jesus is laser-focused on the kingdom of heaven. Each parable is designed to be unified and give us a full picture of this kingdom. We must take these parables to be one diamond, each parable showing us a different facet of that diamond. So in chapter 13, this diamond is the kingdom of heaven. And in our twin parables this morning, the facet we're going to be looking at is the worth or the value of this kingdom. Jesus will sometimes use twin parables to reinforce one point. He does it earlier in, 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 in this chapter with the mustard seed and the leaven, right? In, in those parables, the point was that even though the kingdom's inauguration looks small and insignificant, it will attain significant proportions. As we look at our twin parables of the hidden treasure and pearl of great value, it's not just that the kingdom is valuable like a treasure, or that the kingdom is valuable like this pearl. But rather, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the situation of the man finding this treasure and the response that kind of discovery calls for. Or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the situation of a valuable pearl found by a merchant and the kind of action that discovery calls for. These two parables start and finish the exact same way. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look how they end. Verse 44. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 46. Went and sold all that he had and bought it. In both these parables, we have someone finding something so valuable so valuable that they sell everything else to attain this one thing. So let's start in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The point here is simple. 
The kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth giving up anything to attain. I, I chose to be a student at Denver Seminary initially because of one man, New, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg. Um, and, and, and the first class I had at Denver Seminary was the parables of Jesus taught by Dr. Blomberg. I learned from him that this parable is what he calls a, a simple one-point parable. One parable, or one character, that gives us one point. We must be careful not to allegorize everything we see, which was done in early church history when dealing with parables. If we allegorize every little thing we see, who knows where we might end up. The atonement being made right with God could be seen as something we can purchase. Or this man's ethics, which seem kind of shady, could be taken out of context. The point is, this man, who was not looking for anything, stumbled upon the greatest treasure imaginable. And if you're a Christian in here this morning, you can relate. What does he do? Since he can't just take the treasure because the land doesn't belong to him, he covers it up. He sells everything he owns to buy this field. That's how valuable this treasure is. The value of this treasure is priceless. In verse 45, the pearl of great value. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we have a different story. This man doesn't stumble upon a surprise. But in his search for fine pearls, he does come across a pearl unlike any other. And this man knows pearls. He's a pearl merchant, for crying out loud. But the worth of the pearl that he comes across is so valuable that he pays full price for it. Probably, probably selling a lot of other pearls to get his hands on this precious pearl. It was one of a kind. The meaning for these two parables is simply that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth giving up anything to attain. But can we get even more specific than that? I think we can. The treasure and the pearl speak of supreme value and worth. That's obvious from the text. Both the man and the merchant sell everything to get it. But if the kingdom of heaven is a diamond, and each facet a different aspect of it, this morning we're focused on the value and worth of the kingdom. Let's do a little theology. What brings the value and the worth to the kingdom of heaven? What's the real treasure of this kingdom? Turn back one chapter to chapter 12. It'll be on the screen as well. But before we get to chapter 13 with Jesus' parables about the kingdom, he mentions something very important here in chapter 12. The, the, the Pharisees were accusing him for casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Here's what Jesus says. Chapter 12, verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. 
and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom had come upon them because the king had come. What's the real treasure of this kingdom? The king. There's no kingdom without the king. And being a part of this kingdom is awesome, right? The kingdom of heaven, it truly is, even in this in-between time, this already and not yet. And, and when this kingdom comes in all its glory, it's going to be so much better. Redeemed bodies, redeemed earth, no more tears, pain, sorrow. Come, Lord Jesus, come, right? Right? But we have to understand that what makes this kingdom so wonderful is Jesus, the king. He's the great treasure. He's the pearl of great value. Jesus is the treasure worth giving up anything to attain. Listen to how one pastor theologian explains um, this treasure of heaven. John Piper says, quote, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If your answer is yes, then you don't know the treasure of this kingdom. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Now, these parables are, are not calling us to sell everything we have, although they might be. The reason Jesus told the, the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and come follow him is because his greatest treasure was his wealth. What these parables do call us to, to do is to ask ourselves, what is your greatest treasure? Or like I asked earlier, what is the one thing you desire more than anything in this life. Like if you only had this, you would be satisfied. Ultimately, what do you long for? Being a, Christian's, being a Christian means that we have stumbled upon the greatest treasure imaginable, worth giving up anything to attain. This ought to define us the church is not simply the people with all the right answers to life's toughest questions. Or the ones who live morally upright lives, the ones who, who give generously and live sacrificially. These things obviously ought to characterize us. But ultimately, we, the church, have the greatest treasure imaginable. 
let that sink in. We have the greatest treasure imaginable, worth giving up everything and anything to attain. There's also a key phrase in this text that I skipped on purpose. I don't think it's the main point of this parable, or these parables, but I don't think Jesus said it accidentally, and, and that um, I think there's a purpose that Matthew put it into his gospel account, and the concept is all over the rest of scriptures, so I'd be foolish not to spend some time um, dealing with this phrase. So look back at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy. In his joy. Or other translations, because of joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In his joy. Jesus is not just the great treasure. He's the all satisfying treasure. He is our soul's delight. With this treasure, we can sing with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or like the great African theologian Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. The Christian life is not giving up the fun, satisfying life of pleasure and happiness only to enter the life of duty, dead orthodoxy, and rule-keeping. The Christian life is about joy inexpressible and full of glory. Supreme satisfaction only comes when you walk with God, when Jesus is your heart's desire. The Christian life is a life of joy. And just so we're on the same page, what I don't mean by joy is an extreme excitement and happiness because life couldn't be better. That we always look like we're 10 Red Bulls deep because everything is going our way. That we can't stop smiling and lifting up our arms because we're getting all we want. That's not Christian joy closer to the prosperity gospel. Life can be hard. Many of us know this firsthand. We live in the already and not yet. Depression is a real thing. Suffering is promised and dark days are many in this fallen world. We live in the, in the domain of the tragic, for crying out loud. But the joy that I'm talking about, that this text is talking about, is a joy where we can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. The kind of joy that God is after is a deep trust in him even when life hurts and sometimes life hurts really bad. It's not about how passionate your joy is. It's not even about how strong your faith is. It's about the object of your joy and your faith. And that object is Jesus. The man of sorrows is the reason for our joy. So don't look to your emotions to see what kind of Christian you are. Look to Jesus. 
even when it feels like darkness is your only companion. It's easy to say, God, you are all I need when everything is going your way. But the truth of our treasure is that even when everything is taken from you, God is all we need. Our treasure is enough. In his joy, or because of joy, we must understand that glorifying God and our joy are not contrary to each other. But rather, our delight in God, our soul-satisfying joy, is the way in which we glorify God. So we can be a people who pursue pleasure with all our heart, but we pursue this pleasure in Christ. We taste and see that the Lord is good, so we keep coming back for more. When we understand that enjoying God is how we glorify Him, and we understand with the author of Hebrews that the pleasures of sin are truly fleeting. It's not a choice between pleasure or God. It's a choice between weak, fleeting pleasure and soul satisfaction in Christ. True, lasting pleasure in his joy. For many of us, the things we long for with deep desire, like I can't live without this kind of desire, are usually good things in our lives that we have, re that, that we have received from God, right? Like our, our, fa our family, our health, our friends, our jobs, our careers. And then, of course, indwelling sin brings a host of other tempting lesser treasures, recognition, Approval, comfort, materialism, Instagram likes, and of course, fleshly gratifications. And that list is endless. But the good gifts from God, the good gifts of God, these couldn't become ultimate treasures because they're from God, right? Many of us know um, of Abraham's second call in Genesis 22, right? His first call comes in Genesis 12. That's where God calls Abram out of the land of Ur and, and calls him to the land of Canaan. But in Genesis 22, after God not only establishes but reaffirmed a covenant with Abraham, he also confirmed the covenant by giving him a son, Isaac. In Genesis 22, Isaac, the son of promise, is no longer a boy. He's an adolescent. He's a young man. And God calls Abraham to sacrifice him. And we know this was a test of faith for Abraham and ultimately a type that points to another father-son sacrifice. But is there anything else going on here that we can learn from in our text, in our application? I love how Tim Keller explains what's going on in Genesis 22. Keller says, quote, Abraham got another call from God, and it could not have been more shocking. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This was the ultimate test. 
Isaac was now everything to Abraham, as God's call makes clear. He does not refer to the boy as Isaac, but as your son, your only son whom you love. Abraham's affection had become adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was shifting. God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. Oh, how, how easy can this be? My temptation is, is with my lovely wife, Holly, and our two beautiful daughters, Eden and Shiloh. I need to guard my heart from not putting them in a place that is reserved for my supreme treasure, Christ. And we can all think of different gifts from God that we can easily turn into a counterfeit God. A precious gift from our Heavenly Father, yes, but a false ultimate treasure. We bring God the most glory when we realize the worth of his son and treasure him above all else. I think Dr. Sam Storms defines our phrase in his joy best when he says, quote, God is most glorified in us when our knowledge and experience of him ignite a forest fire of joy that consumes all competing pleasures, and he alone becomes the treasure that we prize. Passionate and joyful admiration of God is the aim of our existence. If God is to be supremely glorified in us, it's criti critically essential that we be supremely glad in him him and in what he has done for us in Jesus, end quote. That we be supremely glad in him and what he has done for us in Jesus. What he has done for us in Jesus. This is the anchor of our joy and the means by which we even receive this treasure in the first place. The gospel, right? Sometimes we can lose the joy that Jesus offers because we've moved past the gospel. But the Christian life starts with and must live out of the gospel. Seeing Jesus as your ultimate treasure means we cannot graduate from this gospel. We love him because he first loved us. Right? This is the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Church, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And, 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 and do we realize what this means? The gospel means that now all the promises of God, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So let me remind us this morning of a few gospel implications. It means that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. No condemnation. It means that in Christ, by his power, he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It means that we who were once alienated to God and haters of God now have peace with God. It means that we've been adopted into his family and we can call him 
Father. It means that we have been justified and sanctified. It means that all things work together for our good and his glory. It means that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. It means that we can cast our burdens on him and he will sustain us. It means that our suffering is not for nothing, but it is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It means that not only is Christ our treasure, but check this out. We are his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. We, church, are the bride of Christ. It means that we are the temple of God and the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. Let that truth jack you up this week. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you. It means that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. It means that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's just to name a few. The Bible, the Bible is full of promises that are true for us, his new covenant family, because of the gospel. For us in here this morning, who are Christians, I, I hope your, your heart is welling up with joy right now. Treasure Christ. That, that, that's our application this morning. Treasure Christ. Which, which we do in, in three ways. First, we treasure Christ by delighting in him. So enjoy him. Savor him. Experience him. To live is Christ. To die is gain, Paul says. Why in the world would death be gain, Paul? Because we get to see our treasure face to face and be with him forever. Let's stop treasuring anything less. Second, we, tell, we, we treasure him by telling others. Praising, praising something completes the joy. We've all experienced this, right? This happened, this happened for me in a, in a real way last year when I saw um, the musical Hamilton on, on Disney Plus for the first time. Any Hamilton fans in the house? All right, just a couple of you guys. Gosh, well, I, I, was, I was late to the game. You guys are really late to the game. Um, but, but, but a week didn't go by where there wasn't a single person in my world who didn't hear me talk about Hamilton and how they must see it. Family, friends, even my first words to my barber were, hey, you got Disney Plus? <laughs> or, 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 or to my coworkers, um, you guys like history and hip hop? Right, right? Why do we do this? Because telling others completes the joy. Telling others completes the joy. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Well, the church, whom Jesus is Lord and supreme treasure, we complete the joy of treasuring him by telling others about him. 
we can't help but to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. It completes the joy that we have in our all-satisfying treasure. And third, we treasure Christ by enjoying the gifts he gives us. We treasure Christ by enjoying the gifts he gives us. Family, friends, food, wine, cre a creation, your job, a sunset. We, we treasure Christ by enjoying his gifts. As Christians, we obviously have clarity in our lives when, when Christ is our ultimate treasure. So now we can enjoy the things of the world without worshiping them. So, so, so go love your families to the glory of God. And, 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 and go hike Pike's Peak to the glory of God. Go, go enjoy an, an, a double-double animal style from In-N-Out Burger, praising the God who gave you taste buds and the flavor he created. We treasure Christ by enjoying the gifts he gives us. And if you're in here this morning and you don't know, you don't know Jesus as the ultimate treasure of your life. Listen to Jesus' own words from Matthew's gospel. He's unlike any master you've ever served. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you be like the man who, after coming across this treasure in his joy, forsook all else to get in on it? Jesus is so valuable, Messio Dei, that he's worth giving up anything to attain. At the end of the day, we will never say following Jesus wasn't worth, worth it. Let us be like, like Jim Elliot. Let us be a people who can say he is no fool. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you that you are the all-satisfying treasure. Lord God, sometimes we just need to be reminded of how sweet you are. Lord, help us. Um, help us to not just go through the motions of our Christianity doing the things we're supposed to do without savoring you. Christ, thank you. Thank you that you are the ultimate treasure worth giving up anything to attain. Thank you for coming here, living for us, dying for us, that we can know and experience you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So these ideas become more real to us as we process them and process them together with others. Um, so at your tables, we'll be doing a couple discussion questions. This is new for me, so I'm a little nervous. <laughs>
Um, but I got two. I got two dis discussion questions, and they are this. I think they'll be up there as well. Um, but first, what is the thing that you long for that competes with Christ? What is the thing you long for that competes with Christ? The tempting lesser treasures. We all have them. And second, how can you complete the joy of treasuring Christ by sharing him with a non-believer this week? So let's get a little practical in that second one. How can you complete the joy of treasuring Christ by sharing him with a non-believer this week? All right. Well, that was an awesome word. Thanks, Rick, for coming and preaching for us. I think we can never be reminded too often how important Christ should be to us and what it means for us to treasure him above all things. I think those three application points of delighting in him this week, telling others about him, completing the joy by uh, sharing the good news with other people, and then the idea of uh, enjoying the gifts he gives. That's such a great uh, application as we go from here. So um, like Stacy said to, during the announcements, the, our small groups, our discipleship collectives, is one of the main places where we do those kinds of things. And so our, this semester, all of our groups are going through sermon-based discussions. So we will, uh, if you're in a DC, be diving in deeper to this uh, message today uh, and talking about how it can, we can live it out uh, throughout the week. So if you're not in a DC yet, I'd highly encourage you to do that. I can help you get connected to one of those groups. Um, but what we're going to do now is what we do every week as we end our services together is once we encounter Jesus through his word, we want to respond in worship. And we can respond in a lot of different ways. We can respond through singing, like we're going to sing two songs in a second. We can respond by giving of our tithes and offerings. We have the offering box on the ramp back there. That's, that should be an act of worship as well. We can respond by praying for each other. If, if you would like prayer, uh, Tristan will be in the back corner there by that door, and he would love to pray with you about anything that you would like prayer for. Uh, we also respond in worship by taking of communion together. And so we, we serve open communion, which means if you are a follower of Christ, if you believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure and that you have uh, surrendered your life to his lordship, we would invite you during these next two songs to come take of the communion at one of these tables. Uh, there's a gluten-free option available with that as well. And I think one of the reasons why we want to respond in worship by taking communion every week is because it is one of those formative practices that reorients our hearts to what we should treasure above all else. And I think the reason that communion is such an important thing is how tangible it is, how we can we can taste the cracker, we can taste the juice, and it reminds us that, that uh, just as those uh, substances are real, uh, Jesus is also real. And, and the problem with, with living in a world like ours that's so materialistic and wealthy is we can be convinced that the other things of the world are actually more important to treasure. Because I can, I can uh, see how my finances are doing, I can fall in love with that instead. Because I can, I can uh, see my family and I, I can feel their physical touch. Those are the things that make me think that maybe they're more important than Jesus. And what communion does every week is just that way of peeling back the things this week that we have been struggling to value more than Jesus and reminds us that he is the one that we should treasure. It's that, that reorientation that comes. And so it's this, this weekly practice where we turn our eyes on Jesus. And just like that, that old hymn says, when you turn your eyes on Jesus, it's the things in the world that become more and more dim. And so during these next two songs, as you come to the table, may that be the prayer of your heart, that those substances would nourish your soul and remind you that he is the one to treasure above all else. So if you are able, would you please join me in standing? And I'll say a word of prayer as we get ready to worship Jesus through singing and through communion. Before I do that, hear, hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
But the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word that was preached this morning. We're so grateful for your love that has been demonstrated for us on the cross. We are so grateful for the power of the gospel that is seen in the resurrection and the empty tomb. And so as we approach the table this morning, Lord, I pray that we would do it with a posture of reorienting our hearts' affections to you that we would see that you are the greatest treasure. You are worth selling all we have and giving all that we are in order to follow you and to see your beauty. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray.